love the contrasts in those songs. And what was so striking to me is when you look at the first three hymns, a mighty fortress is our God. Give to our God immortal praise. How great thou art, magnifying, exalting God. And then you come to hymn 380, my Jesus, I love you. And we can say that because Jesus loved us first. This God Almighty, this God who is great and exalted, this God who is a fortress and a rock for his people, this God who is almighty in every way, has loved us by sending Christ, his beloved son, to die in our place. And so we can sing, I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. I'll love thee in life, I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. The Lord Jesus, let's give him praise and glory still in this morning and every day of our life as we continue our worship this morning by looking at Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. I invite you uh, to ask for the Lord's blessing now on his word. Our great God and Father in heaven, we come before you yet again this morning grateful that you've invited us to come into your presence and we can come with, without a, uh, an additional invitation from you. Uh, Christ has opened the door into your throne room of grace, and you have said that we who belong to you and who are loved by you are welcome to come before you in prayer. And so we are grateful for that, Father, so we come before you yet again this morning. We come before you to ask for your blessing on the preaching of your word. We ask, Father, that as we hear it proclaimed and as I seek to teach it, that it would be done with humility and in the strength of the Spirit, that your people would be built up and strengthened by it, that we would be conformed more and more into the image of your Son through your word, that we would be able to live this life in a way that brings you glory and honor so that when the death dew lies cold on our brow, we could still say, my Jesus, I love you because you have first loved us. So bless your word. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So Acts... Acts 21, um, really, as I was reading it, I realized there's a, there's a shift in Luke's focus here. 
If you've been with us, you've seen that through chapters 1 to 20 um, have really been focused on the spread and the impact of the gospel. I mean, um, that's what we've seen, various peoples, various cultures. The gospel has gone forth. It has transformed the hearts and the lives of people in power and in authority. And Luke has been telling us um, how the early church took that gospel into the world and how God worked through his word to save and redeem sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. And so from this point on, Luke is actually um, shifting his focus all the way to the end of chapter 28 here. And the focus actually becomes on Paul's imprisonment and his trial. So when you look at those chapters, you realize, well, there's not all these missionary journeys or there's not all of this um, taking the gospel to various cities and people and large numbers being saved. Rather, Luke is telling us how now Paul is going to be imprisoned and on, on various trials. And, and I think if there was one thing that, especially here in chapter 21, that I think he's also laying before us is uh, the one word I thought of was Paul's resolve. Paul was resolved to finish the course that God had set before him and the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. He was resolved to testify to the gospel of God's grace, and it was a calling which, as we've seen, included suffering for the sake of Jesus' name. That was Acts 9.15. Suffering for the sake of Jesus' name. And, and I think Luke here, as we'll see, is really in this chapter... I think he's I think he's amazed by Paul's resolve. And he really brings it out in um, in several in three different ways and we'll look at that. But what we need to remember as Christians and it's something that um I th I think we're reminded of over and over again in the scriptures and it, it it's something that I remind you and myself over and over again is that suffering and, and opposition is actually, um, it's the norm for those who follow Jesus Christ. Um, we don't see it as much right now, but it really is part of what the Lord said would happen for those that seek to follow him. Um, Jesus said, Luke 6, 22, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name on account of the Son of Man. Listen to those words again. It starts with blessed, right? Happy, joyful are you when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, spurn you on account of of the name of Jesus Christ. If you're just plain old mean, when people do that, you can kind of expect it, right? But if we suffer and follow Christ as we should, and that happens, Jesus said it would. And this has really been the lot for God's people throughout all generations. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 really makes that clear. Listen to what he says in verse 35. 
of Hebrews 11. Following the glorious display of the victory of Christ in the first part of Hebrews 11, the author says also, some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I'm thankful for that inclusion in this chapter. I'm thankful for that inclusion because here's what it reminds us of. It says that whether we have success in this life or suffering, whatever God ordains for us, and some will be ordained to suffer more than others, this passage makes it clear, God's children will be enabled to persevere in faith through anything. God's children will be marked by a resolve to endure anything for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you always expect that life will bring you good things, and if that's what you believe your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will result in, in good, tangible, material blessings in this life, then when you are sawn in two, you might lose your faith. When you're imprisoned, you might think God doesn't love you anymore. When you suffer, you may just give up. And so this passage in Hebrews is a reminder that faith is victorious, but it also results in suffering for some. And Paul was among those who were called to suffer much for the name of Christ. And he was resolved to do so. So that the power of Christ might be put on display. Here is how he puts it. If Before we even read Acts 21, if you want to, should have probably had you turn here first, but 2 Corinthians 4, I'm just going to read it so you can listen or follow along. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 to 11 just to give you a mindset of the Apostle Paul and his resolve. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul is writing uh, to this church. He's explaining how he does not lose heart because he knows that this ministry is a ministry of mercy given to him by God. And then he's reminded of the jar of clay that he is. And he says, we have this treasure, this, this gospel treasure, as, as well, I think, as this ministry, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God 
and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And then notice the parallel here with Hebrews. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so this is the mindset of the Apostle Paul, I think, as he heads to Jerusalem. Um, And I think this is intended by Luke this resolve that he's going to highlight here in verse 21 to remind those who are reading, such as Theophilus and such as us, that all that God did through the Apostle Paul and that he endured is is what we, through Christ, can do and endure. And we need to be resolved in the way that that the Apostle Paul was. And so, um, so here in this passage... I want you to look as we read through it. There's really three uh, sections where this is highlighted. In the first 14 verses, Paul's going to make two stops that Luke's going to highlight. He's going to highlight his stop in Tyre. He's going to highlight his stop in, that's verses 1 to 6. And then in Caesarea, verses 7 to 14. And what you'll notice in both of those sections is that there is given a a reminder, you could say, or a warning to Paul of what awaits him in Jerusalem. This is is what comes before Paul. And so Luke is saying, already in chapter 20, he was told he's constrained in the spirit to go, not knowing what would happen to him, except that trials and persecutions awaited him. And then you see in the first stop, there's a reminder to him of... um, of what's coming, and then in Caesarea, another reminder to him comes of what's coming, and then an inferred reminder comes to him again in Jerusalem of what's going to come or what the problems are, and through it all, at the end, we see Paul continue by the grace of God to follow through, okay? So let's read that passage. Um, Three parts. He journeys to Jerusalem, 1 to 16. He arrives in Jerusalem, 17 to 26. And eventually, he is arrested in Jerusalem, 27 to 36. So let's read the passage. And when we had parted from them and set sail... We came by a straight course to Kos, 
and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemas, and we were greeted by the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. They've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled 
and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supported, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they are seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. Away with him. What an account. What a resolve the Apostle Paul had. I, I know some people say that the Apostle Paul really disobeyed by going. Uh, there, is, there are some of those who, who believe that in continuing on to Jerusalem that the Apostle Paul was, was disobeying the warnings of the Holy Spirit. But however, as you look at chapter 20 and as you look at him being constrained in the Spirit to go, it is clear that the Apostle Paul is not obeying, but he is actually resolved to follow through with the path that God has laid before him. And he is willing to do it even if it means suffering. And, and that's, to me, what comes out in chapter 21. And so, so Luke really focuses in on um, these two stops here in the first 16 verses. And so the first stop is along the way is in the city of Tyre. Now, it's not clear who all went with Paul on this journey, but it is clear that Luke is with him because you notice the use of the plural personal pronoun we in verse 1. Uh, this is actually used all the way through verse 17, and even in the third person in verse 18 when he uses us. And so Luke is there the whole time, all the way through their visit with the churches, with the church in Jerusalem, with James and the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And so Luke is there the whole time, which is why part of me thinks that as Luke is presenting this, he's like, He's, he's amazed at Paul's resolve. And this is what he's, he's drawing up because he's an eyewitness to all of this. And so you'll notice here in verse 20, in chapter 21 in the beginning, that Luke suggests that their parting from the brothers in Ephesus was difficult, um, which is not surprising considering the ending of chapter 20. But you'll see the word that he used there for parting 
there in verse 1 when he says, we parted. It's a word um, that is reflexive in nature, and it can also be translated as tear away. In other words, Luke is saying, and when we tore ourselves away from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patara, a port on the Lycian coast of southwest Asia Minor. And so Luke is recognizing that in leaving Ephesus, it was a very difficult thing for all of them, even emotionally. But he continues in his narrative here, and he says that they, they boarded a ship headed for Phoenicia, and they were going in a southeasterly direction, and they passed Cyprus, uh, headed back toward Israel, which would have been on their left-hand side, Luke says. And they continued on to the harbor entire of Syria. It was about a 400-mile trip, and apparently they had cargo on the ship. Um, it was the same kind of ship as Paul was on when he sailed from Rome in Acts 27, and so it could have had up to 276 people on it, according to Acts 27:37. However many were on it, they had a lot of cargo to unload when they docked. And at this point, Paul does what he normally does in a city, and he finds a group of believers to gather with. And these disciples were likely the result of the evangelistic efforts of the Hellenistic Christians, you remember that, who were chased out of Jerusalem after Stephen's death in Acts 8. And so these are believers that Paul had likely never met. And so you have this picture of unity in the gospel here among these believers. No matter where you go in life, you've probably experienced that. If you run across a believer, you're running across a family member, right? And so here they are, they're going to this city of Tyre, they come on this boat, and they land, and they find Christians who they stay with for seven days. And then you'll notice, Luke says, that the whole church with wives and children accompanied them outside the city all the way to the beach where Paul and his group would set sail again. Now, the reason I bring that up, and, and as, as Luke is drawing this narrative to our attention is because, as I said there, this is Paul's first warning from the Spirit. So this loving group of believers, they, as Luke is demonstrating, family, kids, children, church, loving, tearing himself away from the Ephesians, and as he's headed to Jerusalem, Luke says, through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So, so picture it like this. Let's say I come to this church where we're loving and closely knit, and I, I'm here and I'm, I'm telling you we're going to go to Nashville or Knoxville, which is where we're, Lord willing, going in, in June. I'm going for ministry and all of you who love me and your kids and your family members say, don't go. Don't, don't go to Knoxville. The whole church, don't go. That's what happened. They, they, they came through the Spirit 
Luke says, to tell him not to go. Now, when he says through the Spirit, you might get the sense that it was a command through the Spirit. But you'll notice here, there is no command given by the Spirit. He's just saying through the Spirit. In, in other words, God had revealed to them the suffering that awaited Paul in Jerusalem. And when they saw what awaited Paul through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go. The Spirit didn't say, Paul, don't go. They looked at it and they said, Paul, we know what is awaiting you. And because we love you and because we care for you, because we do not want to see you harmed in Jerusalem, Paul, we, we're, our, our encouragement to you, Paul, is not to go to Jerusalem. Not to go to Jerusalem, Paul. This and, and this would be going against what the Spirit had already constrained Paul to do. And so, and so the parallel here, as Luke is drawing out this resolve for Paul as it is strengthened, and in, in spite of that warning of suffering, Paul presses on. What came to my mind, and there's several in this passage, but what came to my mind is the parallel with our Lord Jesus Christ going to Jerusalem. Because the Apostle Paul, remember, he is a servant of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus says, I'm calling you to suffer. I'm sending you to Jerusalem. And you're going to suffer in Jerusalem, Paul. But I want you to be resolved to press through no matter what happens. And when you think about the Lord, when our Lord and Luke records this, our Lord repeatedly says to his disciples, I'm telling you what is awaiting me in Jerusalem. I am going to be rejected by the chief priests and the elders. I am going to be crucified. I am going to be put to death. And I am going to suffer on behalf of my people. And yet Luke says in Luke chapter 9, verse 53, that our Lord set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Our Lord went to suffer willingly on a cross that we might be saved. And when the Apostle Paul is taking his name to the ends of the earth, the Apostle Paul needs to be resolved to do the same. And that is not only true of the Apostle Paul, but it is true of each of us. We must be resolved to go to where God sends us to go to carry his name to the ends of the earth, even if it means that suffering awaits us. Paul is following the example of the Lord and he is going forth and pressing forward even after this very first warning. So this isn't a contradictory command by the Spirit. This isn't a contradictory command. They love Paul. They tell Paul not to go. But Paul is on a mission from God. And so Luke says, when they finally came to the beach, they knelt down together and prayed and said farewell. And so Paul likely prayed for their spiritual growth, 
and their unity and their faithfulness to the gospel, and they prayed for his safety. But at the end of the day, they both, all of them, submitted to the will of God and the sovereign purpose of God in, in the end. And so their love for Paul and his love for them um, comes out, and, and Paul loves Christ more, basically, and wants to serve him. So they continue on their journey. This is just a narrative. They, they continue on their journey toward Jerusalem, setting sail from Tyre, and they arrive at a city called Ptolemus, about 25 miles south of Tyre, 80 miles north of Jerusalem, probably evangelized by the same group. And so there they find another group of believers with whom they stay for the day. And before leaving, whether by foot or sea, I don't know, but it's 40 miles to Caesarea. They probably took a ship and they go to Caesarea. And here Luke says, they stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist. And this was the same Philip that was one of the seven men chosen in Acts 6 to serve the church. They were, he was a deacon enabled by the apostle, enabling the apostles to carry on the ministry of the word. And so Philip is also the one God used to carry the gospel to Samaria. Um, he is the one who um, evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch. He is the one who, when he was taken to Azotus, he began preaching the gospel to all the towns until eventually he came to Caesarea. That's Luke 8, 26, or Acts, uh, Acts 8, 26 to 39. So he comes to Caesarea, Philip does, and he brings Paul and Philip together there. Now, what is really neat about that is who would have been the reason for Philip to leave Jerusalem in the first place would have been Paul. Paul persecuting the church. Paul having Stephen's coat cast before him and watching as Stephen was put to death. And so persecution arises on account of the Apostle Paul. And yet here, in <laughs> by the time we get to Acts 21, God actually brings... Paul and Philip together here. Paul, an enemy of the church, now a servant of the church, united with Philip in his home, gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only the gospel can do that. Only Christ can bring enemies together as friends. This is why when there are factions and divisions and these kinds of things within the church, it's, it's such a disgrace, right? Because God unifies the body in Christ in one, and it shouldn't be among us. And so here, Paul and Philip unite. So it seems that this gifted evangelist eventually made his home in Caesarea. He got married, maybe he was before, but at least he, he had a wife. He had four unmarried daughters, Luke says, who prophesied. Uh, something Acts 2, 17 to 18 says would happen in the last days. Luke doesn't tell us the details of their prophecy, but they were gifted in this way. And um, it's not that they held an office of prophet, but they were gifted to prophesy to the church, to speak truth in accordance with God's revelation to encourage the church, probably on a more of an individual basis. Anyway, 
these, this family was very influential, even in the information for the early church when it came to the church's history. They probably even talked to Luke as Luke questioned them and, and gave information about the history of the church. So whatever the nature of their gift was, another prophet named Agabus arrives, and he comes from Judea, and he depicts what awaits Paul in Jerusalem. The same prophet who predicted the famine in Claudius's day, he comes here, and in what is similar fashion to the Old Testament, he gives Paul a picture of what's going to happen. So when you look at the Old Testament prophets, for example, um, Aiha, uh, the Shilonite, in uh, 1 Kings 11, he tore his coat into 12 pieces to show Jeroboam how Solomon's kingdom would be divided. In Isaiah 22 to 6, Isaiah went about naked and barefoot to show how the Egyptians would be led into captivity by the Assyrians. In Ezekiel 4, verses 1 to 3, Ezekiel is told to engrave the city of Jerusalem on a brick to make a replica of a siege against it as a sign for Israel against the coming Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. And so Agabus here comes and he vividly depicts what's going to happen to Paul. And Luke says, here comes Agabus in Philip's house from Judea, and he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and his hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Again, just put yourself in that picture. Among people, specifically, a prophet of God comes and physically before you says, thus says God, the Holy Spirit, this is what will happen to you. Luke sees it. They all see it. The whole church that is there witnesses what Agabus came and said to them. And again, the parallels with the Lord Jesus. When Jesus says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And so once again, Luke is amazed by Paul's resolve here. This picture of what awaits him is vivid, and again, he's not commanded to not go. He's just told what will happen. And then you'll notice that Luke says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So now you, you, you even have the traveling companions of Paul. Not just the church like entire that he had never met, but the traveling companions of Paul are telling him, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. We know what is going to happen to you. You will be bound. You will be imprisoned. You will be beaten. Paul, this is not the place that you are to go. We, we love you. We don't want to see you harmed. 
you can't go to Jerusalem. And, and again, it brings back my re, the, the reminder of our Lord when he says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And then what does Peter say? He rebukes Jesus and says, far be it from me that you should go to Jerusalem. And then Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. This is not from God. This is from Satan. And Jesus says, he is going to Jerusalem because he must die for the sins of his people. And in, and in that similar sense, the Apostle Paul is saying, even though Agabus is saying, this is what's going to happen to you, the Apostle Paul is called by God for a unique purpose to be an example of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, even unto death and he says he is going to go in. And just notice the intensity here. Paul has emotions and feelings. He loved them. But notice that he says, they are breaking my heart as they weep for me. The, the, the word used here is, is kind of used if you're beating something, beating clothes, right? Uh, the other day we, we had our, lawn, our, our rug we, we took outside. And we were going to beat it to clean it. So we gave the kids, they all had bats or whatever. And they're, they're just hammering away at it, right? Hitting it and the dust is coming. They're pounding it. They're having a, a great time out there. But the idea here is that Luke is saying, Paul is saying, you are pounding away at my emotions. Like, he loved them. He says, you're, you're pounding at my, at, at my emotions. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you crying and weeping, and, but I know that I am constrained to go to Jerusalem, and, and really, my love for you is, is demonstrated by the fact that, first, I love the Lord Jesus Christ, and so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. And so Paul says, not only after the first warning and now this vivid second warning, Paul says, listen, why are you breaking my heart? He says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned. So he didn't, he didn't put a limit on his suffering. I think we sometimes do that. I'm willing to suffer this much, but not anymore. He says, I am not only willing to be imprisoned, but he says, even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke says, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. Do you see the parallel there too? Remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's going to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to the, to the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of sinners. And as he prays before the Father, he says, Father, if it is possible that this cup shall pass. And what was the answer? Silence. And Jesus' response is, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so Paul, 
following his Savior, following his example, though he's not going to die in the place of sinners, he's willing to die if need be for the glory of the name of the one who died for him. Jesus Christ, unlike Paul, was actually rejected by all. He went to the cross alone, rejected by men, despised by men, crucified by men, all by himself, because all we, like sheep, have gone astray. And he was hung on a cross for sinners. Paul, at least, was loved by these believers. Paul faithfully served them, but Jesus was his master. Paul was willing to suffer them for them, but Jesus was his king that he would suffer for. That's what faith does. Faith always puts Jesus first. Do you understand that? And, and those of you who are, who are young and your faith is new and you're walking, I, I had a discussion with a couple of young individuals in our church that are seeking to be baptized and and one of the things that Stan and I talk to them about is from Luke 14, where Jesus says, count the cost. Jesus says, count the cost. Because following Christ means following him to the point of denying yourself no matter what it is. That's what faith does. And even if it means suffering, no matter what comes before you, Jesus becomes your greatest treasure your greatest hope, your greatest resolve in life is to obey Jesus Christ no matter what. That's why those who refuse to obey are called to repentance because it is inconsistent with your faith in Christ. And so Paul here is pressing on. He's pressing on as our Lord did. Now, as before, these believers eventually cease pleading. They commit Paul into their hand, into the hands of the Lord. Um, so Luke says in verse 15 now, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea came with us. They brought us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So again, he finds a church to gather with, um, or, or he finds a believer to gather with there in Jerusalem. Um, they led him from Caesarea to the house of Nason. You picture all these Gentile believers coming to Jerusalem with Paul. Uh, Nason was likely a Hellenistic Jew, so he was familiar with the Greek culture and background, and so they all gather together with uh, Nason in his home as kind of a safe haven. Warmly greet each other. They, they meet together. And then Luke says, in verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, they received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So again, with us, Luke went into. After greeting them, 
Paul does what he always does. He related one by one the things, and notice he says, that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. This is all God's work. It's God's ministry. Paul is simply a slave and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, so now here's where it transitions for Paul. They, they recognize that Paul had come there, but there's something very, for them, that is very challenging here as they look at Paul's arrival. And so there's probably around 30 to 50,000 Jewish Christians in Jerusalem at this time. And so they're telling Paul, thank you for the update. We glorify God. We're thankful for what God has done among the Gentiles. But you need to know something, Paul. What you need to know is that over here in Jerusalem, there is another challenge that's before you because you are not exactly welcomed or spoken well of by the people in Jerusalem. So this is warning number three. This is, this is him telling them, he's warned, he's warned by the Agabus, the prophet, and now the very church in Jerusalem is saying, listen, Paul, things can go bad for you here in Jerusalem, and, and they give him the reason why. He, they, they tell him that the situation in Jerusalem is such that there are Jews of those who have believed that are still zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. So they represent this to Paul, and they, they represent it in a way that they say, we know this isn't true, Paul. We know these rumors are false because they were with Paul in Acts 15, they, they, they know that Paul would never do anything to undermine the gospel, um, but they say, nonetheless, this is what we have heard and what we've seen, and you need to be aware of it. And so Paul, his concern has always been where the law makes the gospel void, right? So anytime you see Paul talk about the law, it's always talking about the law as a means of salvation, and he never takes the law in that way. Galatians 2, 1 to 14, 3, 10 to 25, Romans 3, 19 to 20. He, he always says the law cannot be used for salvation, but he does say in other parts of his writings that one's conscience, if it was still bound to obey certain aspects of the law, Neither Paul nor the New Testament ever condemns that. And so Paul never condemned the law as the Jews used it unless it was used as a means of salvation, and they know this. So they don't believe the accusation, but they know that it's creating problems. There's all kinds of rumblings in Jerusalem. And so they appeal to Paul to help them by taking these four men who were under oath and to uh, pay their way for their um, sacrifice and to complete their vow. And that's what they ask him to do in verses 23 to 24. Paul doesn't see anything wrong with this, doesn't undermine the gospel, so he agrees to it, but he's still resolved to go on. Uh, you can look at 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23 to give you a sense of why Paul was willing to do this. Um, 
kind of speeding a little bit through this section here. So, so Paul, not being deterred to go to Jerusalem, he, he continues to go and he takes the men. And the result was exactly as the Spirit had indicated. He's confronted in the temple and arrested. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, totally would have recognized him after three years in Ephesus. They stirred up the crowd and laid hands on him, and they were crying out, Men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. You see the parallels again with our Lord. They accused our Lord of undermining the law of God, didn't they? They accused our Lord of blaspheming the temple of God, didn't they? They accused our Lord of being unrighteous and ungodly and against the Jewish people and a false prophet and an imposter. They accused him of sin. They accused him of wickedness. They accused him of blasphemy. They accused him even in Mark 14, 55 to 59, says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. None of it was true. It was all false. It was wrong because Jesus hadn't done anything that they accused him of. For many, Mark says, bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. It's exactly what they're doing to Paul here. They're accusing him falsely, and then to bolster their claim, notice they say he even brought Greeks into the temple and were defiling it because they saw Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed Paul had brought him in. And of course, he didn't bring Trophimus in. It would have meant Trophimus would have died as a Gentile going into the inner court. And Paul would never have done that. And, and in any case, the false accusation spread throughout the whole city, and the city was stirred up against Paul, and they ran together, and they seized him, and they dragged him out of the temple. And at once, it says, the gates were shut. They shut out the apostle Paul, who was sent by God to bring them the gospel. Just as they rejected our Lord Jesus Christ while he was on earth, the Savior of mankind, so they rejected Paul, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to speak to them of Jesus Christ and the gospel of God's grace to save. That is the picture and the epitome of the heart of man, isn't it? They shut out the message of salvation. They shut out the grace of God. They shut out the offer of forgiveness. They shut out eternal life, and they shut out the living God while 
They're dwelling in their own earthly temple. They shut him out because the world rejects the Lord Jesus Christ and they rejected the gospel message that Paul brought and the Jewish people shut him out. Just like, beloved, we shut the Lord Jesus Christ out as sinners. And we incur the judgment of our sin because Apart from him, there is no salvation. The world will continue to shut Jesus out of their temples, but God says one day he will destroy all that man has made as he did this temple in AD 70, and he will reign in the true temple, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. By him, we enter into God's heavenly courts. He is the gate by which God's sheep enter the pasture. But they shut this messenger of God out along with the gospel. And Luke says they were seeking to kill him. And word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And when he inquired who he was and what he had done, some in the crowds were shouting one thing, and as he couldn't learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, what? Away with him. Away with him. When our Lord was on trial, what did they say? Away with him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Put Jesus to death. He is not worthy to live among us. Of course, we know that God had ordained that. And he had ordained that for our salvation and for our good so that we might hear the gospel. And here is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who is going through a similar path that his Lord went through, and he's going through it with resolve that he might follow in the steps of his Lord, even if it means imprisonment, beating, and death. You see what Luke's saying here? Luke is saying, this man of God, I am watching Christ walk and live through him. And that's what we see 
in this passage, close with this. Our Lord said, the one who follows me must be willing to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Beloved, are we willing and resolved as individuals and as a church to do the same no matter what is the cost? If it means being treated unjustly as Paul was, if it means being arrested for the gospel as Paul was, if it means being accused falsely as Paul was, if it means being beaten, imprisoned, and called to be put to death, and, and, and then even in a practical sense, if it means you putting your sin away and confessing it and turning away from your sin, are you willing to do it? To know Christ is to say yes. To know Christ is to say farewell to your friends if necessary, like Paul did in Tyre. To, to know Christ is to say, yes, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul said in Caesarea. To know Christ is to say, yes, I am willing to do what I can to bring the gospel to the world, even if they don't want to hear it, as Paul did in Jerusalem. To say yes to following Christ is to be resolved to follow Christ no matter the consequences. May God give us grace and faith to do so faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for this lengthy section of Acts that just reveals a a resolve and a commitment on the part of your servant, the Apostle Paul, that we can look to and learn from his example. Uh, we know, Father, that uh, Paul would even be the first to acknowledge his imperfection and his sin. Uh, we do not anticipate, Lord, that we would live this life in a perfect way. We know, Father, that we often fail and we are not as bold as we would like to be, and we, we often struggle, Father, with confidence, and, and we don't always uh, have and exercise the resolve that our Lord Jesus exercised as he committed himself to go to the cross and to die for our sin. But we ask, O oh God, that you would help us to be built up in our resolve, that you would strengthen us by our spirit, that we would not fear what man can do to this body, but that we would rather live in a way that fears you above all and desires to obey you above all. Oh, help to give us that resolve, oh God, to be faithful witnesses and good stewards of the gospel that you have given to us, to be willing to follow you whatever the cost is, that we would not be like those who sought bread and drink and food and healing from your hand alone and then departed when it came time to following Christ to the cross, but that we would be found faithful, that we would endure as Hebrews 11 saints did, whether through life's victories or through life's suffering. May we do that as we bring glory to Christ our Savior, who lives and reigns forevermore.
And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, uh, closing hymn.